Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you but I'm excited for today's word, and I'm, um, I'm expectant for his word, as we always should be. And I want to continue in our series called Painful Purpose, as you see the graphic, I'm sure, behind me. And I want to continue on this uh, theme and this thought of pain in our lives. Um, I've been able to have some conversation and, 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 and stuff like that. And it's very interesting to see how many people could relate to pain in their lives. Um, obviously, it's something that we're all um, going to come and, and it's going to address every single one of us. I was able to get a haircut this week, and the discussion, I always call barbershops men's confessional booths. <laughs> if you go to a barbershop, I mean, there's just men, and they're all saying the darnest of things. And I, I just tell my barber all the time, you have an amazing, he's a believer, and I say, you have an amazing ministry because men sit here, they're calm, and, 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 they're, and all tensions off as... as, as they're getting a haircut, and, and men just begin to speak, and it's a great time of ministry. But I was there getting a haircut, and I noticed that the topic that was being discussed was about pain. And I said, that's what the Lord is speaking to our church. That's what he's speaking to them as they host a Bible study at my barbershop every other Friday. I mean, it's just so cool to see how God speaks a united word at times throughout his body. Amen? And I want to just continue as we introduced this series, Painful Purpose, last week. When you look at Scripture, Scripture does a good job in teaching us many things about pain. You're going to hear me next week uh, get more into it as we get into Easter, and um, you're going to hear me say something like over 70 times is pain um, is mentioned in Scripture, <clears throat> but it does a good job to teach us many things, the Word of God. But one of the things that Scripture does good at is teaching us that pain is temporary. Pain is not forever. Um, I, lo I love moments of the Word of God and, and preaching because it's a good time to take notes. And if there's anything that I want to go back to a notebook on and check, it's that I go back to that page and I could read, my pain is not forever. I know that you may be in a pain that has lasted a long time, but just because it's lasted a long time, I'm reminding you today through the scripture that it's not forever. And don't ever let the enemy fool you. It's for a moment. It's temporary. How temporary is it? As temporary as our life is here on earth. Our life is but a vapor, scripture says. I believe so is our pain. If our life is, so is our pain. Because our resurrected bodies, we'll get into that next week, will not experience pain. Will not go through pain. So it's just for a moment. It's temporary. Now, what's interesting about this is, <clears throat> and your, your life doing, doing life with people, you should know this. You never want to tell someone that's going through pain, right, when they're in that moment of their lives, um, you never want to tell them that. Hey, don't worry about it. It's just for a little while. That's, that's not, it's not the wisest thing to do. But you have to discipline and train yourself to think and remember that this pain will not last forever. And, and that could be difficult. It's much easier said than done. We read last week Romans. We, we read it quickly. We, we read Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 again. In Romans 8, 18, last week, it said that our, our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our present sufferings. I, I want you just to pause and really think about what that sounds like, what that looks like in your life. My present sufferings is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In me, there will be a glory that today's sufferings can't even scratch the surface I mean, that's, there's a hope in Scripture constantly giving us hope that suffering is not eternal. Suffering is not forever. We read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, and Paul says, do not lose heart. Therefore, do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. 
Don't put your head down. Don't lose heart. And, and when you read that, you're like, sure, Paul. And Paul has weight in this area. Paul has anointing in this area. That he could look at a believer and say, don't lose heart. Because if you were to tell Paul, who do you think you are to tell me not to lose heart? We read last week, well, let me tell you my resume of the things that I have had to confront in my life. And because of that, I have the authority to tell you, don't lose heart. So if anyone is going to say don't lose heart, I'll take it, obviously, from the Word of God. I'll take it from the Apostle Paul as he tells me, the listener and the reader, do not lose heart. And I put my name in there, Regal. Don't lose heart. For your present troubles are small. You, you listen to that and you're like, well, for me it's big. And he says, your present troubles are small. And they won't last very long. And Paul's reminding the listener that yes, there is trouble. And yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is pressure. But in the sight of eternity, uh, it's small and it's, and it's very short-lived. And I look at that and I say, I'm so encouraged to hear that. I'm so encouraged to know that it's small and it's short-lived. It says, yet this suffering, these troubles that Paul is introducing to us, he says they produce for us, they, they're bringing forth the fruit of it, the fruit of such troubles in your life. If you're in Christ, the fruit of it is that it's producing for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So in your notes, write this down. My pain doesn't last forever. His glory in me does. And that's the hope that we have as a church. As a believer, my hope is that His glory is what lasts forever. And I, 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 that's what He's doing in me. That's the work. That's the sanctification. That's the process that is being done in me. And, and many times... The way he does it is, he does it by bringing pain. And he allows pain, better said. He just allows it. Well, why God? He's like, I know it seems harsh. I know it, you feel like I don't have a heart in it. But I am so aware. And you will one day see that everything that I am doing and I have done is to produce something beautiful and great in you. Amen? Verse 18. I hear everything you're saying. So in verse 18, he says, so what do we do? So this is what we do. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. I mean, I mean, how many of you have mastered these verses? Like, have you mastered them? It's hard. So don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Really? I mean, it's easy just to read it in Scripture, but how do we apply that into our lives? How do we live that out in our lives? What needs to be done to think like this? What thoughts need to be removed from our minds so that these thoughts of Christ can be placed instead? The Bible says to what? To put on the mind of Christ. It even says to be sober-minded. When I'm not sober-minded... And I allow other things in my mind that are carnal and that are fleshly and that are weak. I immediately get overwhelmed, trumped, drowned in my troubles. I could tell you that the greatest proponent of drowning in my troubles is the health of my mind. Anyone with me? It feels like one of those Sundays, you know? But when I recognize that my mind has to have the mind of Christ, the thoughts of Christ, the word of God needs to be in there. Paul says we don't look at the troubles that we can see now, but rather this is what we should be doing. And this is the training of your mind. This is the training of your eyes. This is the training of your spirit life. I know it may seem difficult. I know verses 16, 17, and 18 could be so far and so distant and such a far reality and a far reach from your life. But Paul writes this down as the whole 
Holy Spirit inspires him to write this, and he says, don't look at the troubles that you see now, and it's difficult, and you're fighting, and you could wrestle, and you could, ah, this is very hard for me. And Paul gets into this teaching and into this thing that he draws out for us, and he says, rather, what we should do is fix your gaze. Fix your gaze on the things that cannot be seen. Fix your gaze on the kingdom of heaven. Fix your gaze on the thoughts of heaven. Fix your gaze on the things of Christ. Doesn't scripture says, and on these things, think about these things, the things that are lovely and pure, and and the scripture goes on to think about the godly things. Let that consume your mind. And Paul says, fix your gaze on this stuff, on the things that can't be seen. For the things that we see now, you should say it with me, will what? Will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see, guess what? They will last forever. I'll be very transparent, but I'm going to leave out some of the details, but just transparent in my pain. One of the things that consumes me and, and, and my mind is, is overwhelmed with, and I would receive counsel from anyone that could help me with this, and I feel I know the counsel because I know what the Word of God says. I'm reading it right here. Um, it's the trouble that the world is in, you know? Um, there's a lot of things that I see and that I hear. And um, it drives my mind crazy. So... I get really worked up, you know, because then I, I have a 10-year-old now, and I have this 6-year-old, and I'm like, ah, and, and there's this thing in my heart that I know I have to train them up, and I know we have to pave the way for them, but as a believer in this world, I'm like, ah, I don't want them to live in this world, you know, what they're teaching, and what they're doing, and what they're seeing, What's on television is like, what do I do? How do I parent my child in this age? Like, I, my child will be the only child never to watch television. My child will be the only child never to go anywhere. Like, how, how do we teach them the realness of what, and we try our best, you know? Hey, these are decisions that people make in their lives. And it's a struggle, and there's things that happened even this week that, that I had to just tune off, and I just stopped listening to it, and... And I read things, and I see things, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I try, and I listen to stuff, and, and I try to stay up to date with the climate of the world, you know? I start seeing that, like, you should be aware. Like, for me, I am aware that China, Brazil, and India, and all these countries got together, and they're creating a currency outside of the U.S. dollar. Like, I recognize that things are going to start happening in the United States very soon. I'm not oblivious to it, and I get it. I live here, and my children live here. And guess what that does to me as a father of a house, as a husband to a wife? Where do we go, God? So lately, I've been thinking about Scripture where it says, The Spirit and the bride cry, come quickly. I'm just being transparent with you. There's a lot of things that I wish I could change. There's a lot of things that I wish I can do, but I recognize I have no power in that. I don't have the ear of our president. I don't have access to the Supreme Court. Or, and greater men than me have probably stepped in there and have said things that I can't even touch the surface of saying. And, but I have to remember that there is a king that sits on his throne that is not shaken, that is not worried, that has not been moved, that is not concerned, that everything is working for its purpose and for his plan, and there will be a day where there will be no more pain, and there will be no more suffering, and there will be no more darkness, and there will be no more perversity, and none of these things will exist no more, so my call and my moment that I'm in is don't look at the troubles that you see, but if you could do anything, fix your eyes on the things that you can't see. Those things last forever. Not China and India and Russia and not everything that's happening in our world with laws that are... 
It is my word and my kingdom that lasts forever. Keep your eyes on that because that's where you belong. That's where we belong. Hopefully my 10-year-old and 6-year-old gets it. Hopefully your children get it. Pain is an interesting topic. We could all relate to it. And the form, the manner, and how it comes can be different to each person. But in honesty, we all have to deal with some sort of pain in our lives. How many of you have dealt with pain in your lives? Could have been a death. Could have been a divorce. Could have been a layoff. Financial problem. Could have been a family problem. I mean, it comes in different forms. But I don't want to stand up here and have the heart to wave my hands or yell at you and say, come on, get over it. Get over your pain. What a horrible message to preach. If I were to say, get over your pain. This doesn't last forever, you know. How would you feel coming to church that saying, get over your pain. It doesn't last forever. You know, you could stop pouting. Heaven is going to be so much better. Get over your pain. All those statements are true. Get over your pain. Heaven is going to be better. Stop crying. They're, They're true statements. We just read what Paul wrote. But it doesn't resonate with empathy, does it? To me, this has to be one of the most beautiful words that we have in our vocabulary, in our language. It's the word compassion. You should write that word down. Today's message is titled, Compassionately. It doesn't even make sense, but I couldn't think of another title. It's called, Compassionately Painful. Because that's our walk with God sometimes. It's compassionately painful. I love that word compassion. I love to look at definition of words. And here's one way in which compassion is defined. I'm going to read it to you. It's to recognize the suffering of others and take action to help. Compassion embodies a tangible expression of love for those who are suffering. It's a beautiful definition. So as a church, we're discussing pain, specifically our pain and how it relates to us. But here's some questions for you to ask yourselves. Or I'll ask it to you, you could ask it to yourself, and it's this, do you have compassion for others? I've never understood the Christian that someone does harm to them And one time someone does harm to them, they X them out of their lives. That person lacks compassion. Because you know how many times I've done something to God? And God has gracefully loved me. The Christian that X's someone out for the one harm that they did has to really relate and recognize in their heart if they're even in Christ. The Bible says, how many times do I forgive, Lord? The Lord says, how many times do you forgive? This is how much you should forgive. Seventy times seven, not once. You keep on forgiving. I feel like we need to have compassion for one another. We need to have compassion for this world. Compassion for people that are struggling. I hope I could have great compassion for you, and you could have great compassion for me. Do you have compassion for others? You need to ask yourself that because that is going to really highlight where you are in Christ. Have you ever had someone show compassion towards you? Can you answer that? How did it make you feel when you know you should have gotten the raw end of the deal, but they still forgave you and loved you? How did that work out? Wasn't it worth it? Isn't it good? If this world is lacking anything, I would say compassion is at the top of that list. 
And my heart is feeling all kinds of ways, and the last thing I need to do is be around people that are not compassionate. Compassion is what God's calling us to have. So what I'm trying to do is to encourage you in these weeks about your pain. And yes, it could be turned into purpose, but you could say, but what about now? When I'm going through it, is there any compassion towards me? What about someone else, another person? When they're going through it, is there compassion towards them? How would you answer that? Seriously, I want, you, I want you to do an assignment right now. Who in your life needs compassion from you? I want you to answer that to yourself. Who needs compassion from you? And here's the question, whether they deserve it or not, whether they're going to accept your compassion or not. Because when Jesus saw some 15 to 20,000 people, when he was standing on the top of the mountain and he saw them in the valley because they were hungry because they'd been with him, following him for three days and they have not eaten or drank anything. And he looks at his disciples and it says that he was moved with compassion. He says, give them food to eat. I am sure that in that 15 to 20,000, I get that the Bible says there was only 5,000, but there was 15 or more thousand people that were there because they were in cluster groups. Do you think that 15,000 people, all, every single one of them, was going to respond correctly to the compassion of Jesus Christ? You answer that. Impossible. So regardless how that person that you need to show compassion to, however they're going to respond or whether they're going to receive it or not, who in your life do you need to show compassion to? Answer that question for yourself. Because you know what? They're going through pain and they need your compassion to heal it. Amen? Someone that's going through it, is there compassion towards them? You answer that. Is there compassion towards them? Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, is there compassion for me? Is there any compassion left? How would you answer that? How would you answer if there's any compassion left for you? Can I read a scripture to you that rocked me this week? Well, I'm not going to read it yet. I'm going to give you two scriptures first. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 10, it says that God's word, and I hope he speaks his word to you. I hope you read it. You've always heard someone say, I've never heard the audible voice of God, right? You've heard someone say that? And then you hear the other person say, well, start reading it out loud. Walk around your house and read it. We're all waiting for a sign. God, let your Shekinah glory and let the voice of heaven speak to me. And he's like, open the Bible and begin to read it. And it starts to speak to you. <laughs> and what is it when he speaks to you through his word? The Bible says that his word is sweeter then honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. In Psalm 119, the psalmist, he sings a song, and look at the songs that he chooses. Look at the words, sorry, that he chooses to sing to God. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste. And he says, they're sweeter than honey to my mouth. So the Lord in Scripture, we see, has sweetness. He has compassion towards you, even in your pain. That when man fails, the Lord will remain firmly compassionate towards you. His word and his thoughts and his love towards us is sweet and filled with compassion. And church, I say this to you. He understands your pain. He understands our pain. And here's the scripture that I want to encourage you with. And it's Psalm chapter 56, verse 8. You know it, I'm sure, by memory probably. But it's a, it's, memorize it. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. And you've recorded each one in your book, Scripture says. I say, God, do you understand the, 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 the tears that I cry? Do you, do you see them? Do you hear the desperation in my soul? And he says, not only do I see the tears, 
and hear the desperation of the inner cry, but I collect every single one of those tears and I have them all saved in a bottle and they're all there. Each one is collected. Every single one of your thoughts, they're recorded in a book and I'm writing them all down. I know every detail of your struggle, Regal. It's written and it's collected because of how much you mean to me. I mean, David is writing this at a very, very important time of his life. This is a period in David's life where he wasn't really at at a high in his life. He was actually in a place where he was running to a cave. Psalm 56, 8 is written during 1 Samuel chapter 22. And in that time of David's life, He is entering the, I don't know what the cave is called, the Adullam Cave or whatever it's called, but he's entering that cave. He's running. He's terrified. He's going through it. He's asking questions. When I was a young man, your prophet came and visited daddy's house, and they called me from the field, and they anointed me with oil, and they said that I was going to be the anointed man of God, the next king of Israel, and here I am today. I'm running into a cave. God, what is it? Am I weak in a cave, or am I the next king of Israel? Who am I? You ever been there? They prophesied to me that this is who I would be. But yet I'm in a cave. And what does he write in a desperation place of being in a cave? He cries out to the Lord and he says, You keep track of all my sorrows. And all my tears are in a bottle that you are collecting. And all of my thoughts, everything, all of it is recorded in your book. He was completely alone, David. And in his moment of being alone... This made him value the sympathy and the care of God even more. And he found great comfort in this thought as he writes this down that God has noted my misery. God has noted my tears. He's written them in his book and he collects them in a bottle. I have a thought about that bottle. I have an idea about this bottle. Like, he has a bottle and it's all my tears are in it. And, and I thought about this. If this is the bottle with all my tears that I've ever cried and God looks at it and, it, and it's got a label on it and it says, Regal's tears while on earth. I mean, God doesn't overlook your pain. He doesn't fall short of understanding it. He is very involved with every detail of you that all your tears are being collected in his bottle. Every tear, every pain is being recorded in his book and every single one of these accumulates to a specific tear that he knows the detail of. Only God can do such a thing like know the hairs numbered on your head. Deeper than that is every tear accounted for in a bottle that he holds in eternity. I've always been wild about him knowing every hair on my head. But you should be more wild that he knows every tear you've ever cried. And they're all being recorded and they're all being saved and collected. And I have a feeling I know why because I think I know what's going to happen to this bottle. I kind of want to save it for next week, but I don't care if I have to repeat myself today. I'll I'll repeat myself next week. I have an idea, because the Bible says next week, we'll get into that, in, in eternity there is no more what? Tears. The tears are wiped away from their eyes. Do you know what that means? No more bottles will be collected with tears. I believe that I'm going to give my crown back to the feet of Jesus, as Scripture says, but I also believe that he's going to give me the bottle of tears, and I'm going to pour it at the feet of Jesus and say, all those tears 
Man, let them be back at the feet of Jesus to worship you. Do you remember that there was a woman who was very promiscuous and known in the town? And when Jesus came into her town, she learned that he was there. And she came from behind his feet. And with her very tears, she washed his feet with her hair. She began to wash it. And the Pharisee that was sitting in front of him says, If he only knew who this woman was that is at his feet, drenching his feet with her tears and cleaning his feet with her hair, he would tell her to get up. And Jesus rebukes that man's heart and says, Since I've been here, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet and washing my feet and pouring her tears on my feet. Because I believe that in eternity, the bottle will be given back to us to give it back to Jesus because they belong at his feet for his glory and honor. Every tear that I've ever shed on this side of eternity is meant for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give it back to him. And I'm going to say, I'm not keeping this bottle either. And I'm going to pour it at his feet. I'm going to say, it's for you, Lord. Every single one, even the ones that I'm shameful about, they're yours. Because there's some ugly tears in my bottle that I wouldn't dare say them out loud. But they're there. And he's counted it. And one day, they'll be at his feet to give him the worship that he deserves. I believe my crown will not only be what's at his feet. Just like the woman, I also believe that my tears will be where they belong. And that is at the feet of my Savior. At the feet of the one who's counted every single one of them. At the feet of Jesus. I believe that. doesn't say it in the Bible, I don't think. But I believe it. So I start to think about the Lord. I start to think about our Father. And I said, man, here I am crying to you guys about my children. But as a father, this has to be compassionately painful for him. Because he has to allow us to go through pain. Because most of the times that pain is doing a purpose in us. Well, what is pain doing in us? It should be giving you greater weight. It should be giving you greater wisdom. Right? Greater glory. Because he's taking you through pain. And don't ever let the enemy, don't ever let anyone else or you yourself lie to you, to yourself. But be aware that he has every tear Every tear of yours collected, and every tear that is collected, he has that story to that tear collected as well. And it's written in his book. It's in his bottle. I don't know what else to tell you, but he is such a good God. As a father, he goes through pain as he allows his children to go through pain as well. When Jesus went through all that It hurt the Father. We'll get into that next week, but it served a purpose. I hope you can say amen to that. I'm going to wrap this up because I feel the Holy Spirit is, um, is doing whatever he has to do. Last week, I shared a story of a woman that I met, um, in a plane, and as I met this store, as I met this woman, I shared with you a little bit of her pain turning into purpose. I want to share another story with you today. Um, I, w- I was reminded by a friend of this story in the last two weeks, and it was a story that we've heard before, and I, I want to share it with you. But to share it with you, I want to read it uh, from a column that was written by a by a gentleman of the name of Brad Morris, and the column is titled, Is There a Catfish in Your Life? 
I, I kind of wanted to name the title of the message that, Is There a Catfish in Your Life? But I felt compassionately painful matched better. So what is this whole catfish in your life? Maybe you know the story already. Like, oh, I know exactly where he's going. In the northeast, northeastern United States, the sale of codfish, if you've ever eaten codfish, it's a big commercial industry. And there's a huge market for codfish all over the northeast. Uh, but just not only just the coast, uh, but the areas farther inland have a desire um, for codfish. And the fisheries and their supporting industries desire to, to meet the demand to ship their codfish to those other areas. But there was a, there was a very um, large problem, and the shippers from the northeast had to overcome. It's how to get the codfish to their customers. How to get the codfish from the northeast further inland while maintaining the flavor of the codfish and the texture of the fish without losing the flavor and the texture. So in, in other words, how could they deliver the same product that these customers inland had grown to love visiting the Northeast? How can they keep that and send it to them so they could, in, they could enjoy it? So they began to experiment what to do with the codfish to keep it pure and tasteful. And they said, here are different ways in which we could ship it. At first, they froze the fish, the cod. They froze it. And they shipped it frozen. But they discovered that freezing the cod, it took away much of the natural flavor from the codfish. So they attempted to ship them alive. Okay, frozen doesn't work. They taste bad. Let's ship them alive. And they used great tanks of seawater um, in, in trucks, they filled up trucks with, with, with salt water and they filled them up with codfish. But the results of that were even worse than freezing the cod. A number of issues arose. Um, first off, it was much more expensive to ship them that way. And the codfish lost its flavor even more than freezing it. And not only that, but it became very soft and mushy. It was a disgusting fish. It was seriously affected the texture of the fish. No one wanted to buy the codfish. No one wanted to buy from their product. So finally, there was someone that was in the mindset of what's going on here, and he began to think outside the box, and he says, I have an idea, and they began to look at how codfish lived and survived in their natural habitat, in the ocean, and the person says, Let's grab everything that is natural, the natural things that are to the codfish. And, and, and let's see if this works out. So they found out that the codfish has this natural enemy in the wild. And the natural enemy is called the catfish. So the shippers, what they did was they said, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll put the codfish back in their tanks like we used to ship them. But this time will put their natural enemy in the tank with them. So what they did was they put the catfish, the natural enemy, the catfish in the tank with the codfish, and something amazing happened, as you could guess. From the time that the codfish was shipped from the point of origin to the east coast, whether it got shipped all the way to the west coast, wherever it was, however far away it was, or it had been, those annoying pests of a catfish what they did throughout the whole journey of shipping the codfish, the catfish chased, chased and chased and chased the codfish, their prey all over the tank throughout the whole journey. The, the codfish was constantly moving so it wouldn't be eaten by the catfish. And you could guess, right, what happened next. The codfish arrives at their destination. And when it arrives and they unpack it from the tank, it's just as fresh as when they were first caught. They had not lost any of its flavor, nor the texture was it affected. The answer to bad business problems had been solved for the northeastern fishing cod industry. And it was solved, but it was solved in an unusual way to ship the codfish with its enemy. And the codfish would arrive healthy, tasty, and strong. So each one of us in our lives have been placed in a tank. 
A tank of difficult and unavoidable circumstances. A tank in which it could be stressful, painful, just to stay in this tank. You wanted to jump out of your tank. Maybe if I jump out, I'll, I'll land in another tank of water. You won't. That's your tank, and you're called to live in that tank, and there is no way of escaping that tank. We're, we're continually wondering, why am I here? Why am I in this tank? And we each are painfully aware that in our situation, we're, we're not alone. There, there in that tank, our God, our God, appointed, allowed and appointed a catfish to be in there with us, to bring sufficient pressure, to keep us busy, to keep us prepared, bright, and yes, to keep us growing. And it's all part of God's work. Why would God allow a catfish in my tank? And God's like, because I'm shaping your life to be more like my son. So part of life is understanding why the catfish is in our tank. It's to realize that God uses them as part of his plan to help us grow and to become molded to the behavior and to the character for which God has designed us. Without them, we become tasteless, we become nasty. Our life becomes one, one in which others want to avoid. Avoid that kind of Christian. And what you need is God puts a catfish in your tank to keep you pure, to keep you hungry for him. So I wrote this down. Maybe, just maybe, God put a catfish in your life, in your tank, to keep you alive and to keep you well spiritually. Why is this catfish here? And you don't know it right now. But maybe in the grander picture of it all, the Lord says, because if that catfish wasn't there, you'd be more dead than alive. You have no idea. It doesn't take too many days for you to lie in a hospital bed without moving before your muscles begin to grow atrophy. And then you have to undergo physical therapy to regain the muscles, the muscle tone, the strength, and it's not an easy process, neither is it painless, but the end result is the ability to be mobile, to continue to live your life and do what you need to do under your own strength. And this is the whole point of the catfish in your tank. It strengthens you. And we become the people that we are supposed to be through the trials. Come on. Maybe you're there and you need to look at those trials. Through those tribulations, through those pain, through the problems in your life. We survive by resisting and working through those difficulties that life hands us. You're like, why is life handing me this? Well, it's doing a work in you. Just like the codfish, you remain vigilant against the catfish of life. Or what happens is you end, up become, you end up becoming eaten by them. So may you swim well in the tank of your life. May you keep your eyes. What does Paul say? Keep your gaze. We opened up the service with. Hebrews 12, 2. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, listen to what he did. He endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus swam with the catfish, folks. The catfish of his world. And Jesus endured them, and he realized that the final result of his own life would be your life. It can be painful, but he has compassion. And that's why I call this compassionately painful. In one article I read from a doctor called Paul Brand, it says that this great medical missionary, this guy, Dr. Paul, and he worked his life with lepers. And he saw the suffering that they went through. And one of the problems with leprosy is that the leper can no longer feel pain in the leprous parts of his body. So this doctor, Dr. Brand, talked about what a tragedy that was. And this is, I quote Dr. Brand, he says, If I had the power to eliminate human pain, I would not exercise that right. Pain's value is too great. Dr. Brand said there is a protecting purpose of pain. 
That when a healthy person, for example, has injured his leg, he develops a limp that causes him not to put weight on it. A leper will sometimes wear a wounded part of his body because he feels no pain. He might burn a cigarette down until it burns his skin because he never feels it. He doesn't have pain to protect him. So Dr. Brand, this medical missionary says, you see, pain is a sign of God's love. And I can't believe he wrote this and I'm going to say it out loud. Thank God for pain. It tells us that something is wrong and it protects us from harm. Maybe the greatest harm, if we could think about it in our own lives, is living our whole lives and yet remaining the same. Imagine remaining the same. One of the pastors in our fellowship who's very loved, just an anointing of God, has a grace to preach the word of God and a grace to pastor people. He came to the end of his life. He'll be with us at the end of the year and he was dying and he was in his hospital bed. He called the overseer of our fellowship and he came to visit him. And his main words, and he might share with us when he comes, is that he looked at him and he says, I didn't do enough with my life. If you knew this man, you'd be like, that's such a lie. You are, you're a man of God. You've done great things for his kingdom. And at the end, he came to that point to question if he did everything that God had called him to do. And I thought about that and I said, maybe the greatest harm in our lives is just remaining the same and not growing. We're called to change and I want you to know that change is painful. But we allow the work of Christ, we allow the sanctification to continue in our lives. How many of you could say amen? So I, I do this and I say this, I ask this again, what is your pain building up? in you and for you what is its purpose is there a catfish in your tank have you seen its purpose for you all your tears what are they all your pain is it doing its work in you is there purpose in the painful in your life I want you to really focus on that as we close. There's a couple scriptures, but I won't read them to you today, but I'll give you the, the reference because I know this is recorded and you could go back to it and listen to it. But maybe pain is doing a few things and I was reading an article from a, a Focus on the Family and I thought it was interesting because I said, yeah, I've seen that in my life and maybe pain is doing a work in your life. What are some of the things that pain can be doing? Well, maybe the pain is producing intimacy with God in your life. There's individuals that have been Christian for two days, 20 weeks, and maybe even 20 years. And sometimes they say, you know, I just don't know when was the last time I really was intimate with God. I don't know when was the last time I've wept before the Lord, and my heart has been broken before the Lord. I, I don't even know if I have intimacy with God. It's almost like a religious thing. I just go with the... Um, motion of life and the motion of Christianity maybe there's pain in your life because the Lord wants to build intimacy with you have you thought about that in Job chapter 42 verse 5 Job is a man that we could look at scripture and says he had to endure pain and the Lord was working on his intimacy I'll read the scripture he says my ears had heard of you but you know what Job says in chapter 42 verse 5 but now my eyes have seen you is pain producing intimacy. Maybe the pain in your life is equipping you to comfort others. Remember I said, how many people in your life need to have compassion? They need your compassion. Have you thought about that individual? Maybe your pain is to show them compassion. Maybe you need to comfort someone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it reminds us of this. Praise to God, the Father of our Lord, our merciful Father, the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all troubles. Why does he comfort us? So that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God's given us. For the more we suffer for Christ the more God will shower us with his comfort. Amen. 
Suffering gives us compassion for others. Others who are hurting. Sufferers want to be ministered by people who have suffered. Piper and Justin Taylor in their book, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God, I quote them, they wrote this, people who suffer want people who have suffered to tell them there is hope. They are justifiably suspicious of people who appear to have lived lives of ease. Your suffering serves a purpose, church. How about this? Is your pain refining you? Isaiah 48 says, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Because he wants to refine us. How many of us can say, yeah. He purifies and refines us to be the radiant bride of Christ. Is your pain, is your suffering producing growth and maturity? James chapter 1 says, Brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect, complete, needing nothing. Is it producing growth and maturity? And the last one I wrote down is this, is your pain, is it conforming you into the image of God? Romans 8, 28 and 29, we've quoted this a lot. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God, called according to his purpose. For God knew his people, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. If we are willing to sit still and let God work, we will find ourselves being transformed into the image of Jesus. How many of us could be like, yeah, man, amen. Come on, compassionately painful. He has seen, he still sees, and he will always see your pain. He is moved with compassion towards you so much that the catfish is not meant for your destruction but to transform, to give purpose, to keep you alive, to keep you fresh, to make you and to allow you to be the salt and the light of the earth. So I end with the same reminder in the middle of the message. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you. Psalm 56, verse 8. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle, and you've recorded each one in your book. Thank you, Lord.